What's up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I'm Jordan. With me, as always, is Jared. Hello, Jordan. How are you today? Doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. Uh, you have to apologize. You have to forgive Jared. He's sick and like just struggling to survive right now. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, recovering from the flu. Um, I was in bed all day yesterday with the most horrible headache and body aches I could ever experienced so and my voice is a little rasped too but i'm still here with you all so that happened because god willed it yes so as with all things today we are going to be re-answering some questions for atheists so recently we responded to a channel called uh, the jigsaw guide to life run by a scottish gentleman named alex mcclellan and he had 10 questions that we thought were worth our time to answer, and we went through them. We'll leave a link in the description for the original video. He was kind enough to respond to us, um, and we won't respond to everything he said to us uh, because I think there's not much to add for a lot of it, but for several of his pieces, I think there was some equivocation going on, maybe some lack of clarity and communication. Um, so I thought it might be useful to everybody if we just repeated ourselves again and like clarified some points that we think might have been missed. Uh, so that's yep. what we're going to do. This is our response to his response to our response to his video. Yes. Yeah. His video, we responded, he responded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably the last one in this thing, but we'll keep talking if you guys like it. So yeah. uh, before we get into that, today's fallacy of the day is the appeal to emotion fallacy. Hmm. Yeah, so this fallacy uh, is quite common uh, within official, you know, um, debate structures also, but just in normal parlance with, with talking with humans. So this is done when you appeal to someone's emotions in order to, in order to persuade them to uh, a point that you're trying to convey, right? Um, it's often done in, in absence of evidence. So, Right, in lieu of evidence. Yes. So something like, well, you've got this evidence that Santa is not real. But if Santa weren't real, I wouldn't like that. It would make Christmas less fun. You know, we wouldn't have ma- Christmas wouldn't be as magical and enjoyable. Therefore, Santa is real. Yeah, a lot of times you you've heard this before. Like, think of the children as a way of like to appeal to somebody's emotions. Because anytime you bring up kids, people get emotional, and so that's uh, I think that was done yeah. at Mary Poppins originally. So, <laughs> yeah, um, it, it, you politicians will appeal to emotion all the time. Uh, so the baseline here is that emotions are not a substitute for arguments. They can inform our arguments, and sometimes they are relevant pieces of information if you're talking about um, whether or not you what you're doing will harm someone or like hurt their feelings or something. Obviously, emotions are a relevant piece to the thing you're talking there. They're a piece, they're not, you're not substituting fact emotions for facts at that point. The emotions themselves would be a relevant fact. And so that would not be an appeal to emotion. But if you're trying to make an argument without facts and replacing those facts with feelings that is fallacious yes yep so um not that one... that's going to come up at all during this response <laughs> not not at all um in fact i would like to say we we appreciate this kind of interaction that we had with alex um and you know i wish more people on the internet uh could have you know debates like this back and forth that are kept civil um, and just, he seems like a really nice guy. So I want to just put that out there to start off. So, and as skeptics, we want to make sure that we are engaging with the best arguments for the position against our own position, right? Mm-hmm. The only way we're going to find out if we're wrong is if we engage in these kind of conversations with people who disagree with us and are able to push us on things that we might've taken for granted. And at the end of it, maybe we've, you know, are able to change our mind or if we don't change our mind, we can at least uh, come away with a better understanding of our own position. And that's always yep. good. And also, uh, just side note here, he did challenge me in his response video to read his book, A Jigsaw Life, to uh, something. I ordered it on Amazon. It's in the mail, so I'm going to read it, and I'll get back with him on how I feel about it. So We can throw it onto our uh, list of books to review for our bad book reviews <laughs> coming up. So. Assuming that it's bad. It might be good. So, Well, yeah, but we have to have a catchy title. This is yeah. Okay, it's true. true. (laughs) Okay, so uh, we're just going to basically go question by question, and where we think there's a piece of something relevant, we'll play a clip of his video, and then we'll respond to it. So starting with question 10, the question was, how can you get something from nothing? And our response was essentially, 
you can't, but here are all the ways in which that doesn't apply. And here's what he had to say. How can something come from nothing? You could say this is really beginning at the beginning. And Jordan's answer got my attention because he agreed with me. He said, you don't get something from nothing. Therefore, surely, Jordan, you agree with me that Lawrence Krauss's book is a misnomer in terms of its title. He should change the title. Instead of a universe from nothing, surely he should call this a universe from something. And it wouldn't be controversial. Speaking of titles, <laughs> uh, this this cuts up way more than you might think. I think Lawrence Krauss's book really ruffled some feathers in the theist community. So for anyone, I, I think I mentioned this in the last video, but for anyone who may not be aware, Lawrence Krauss is a cosmologist, a physicist who specializes in like the origins of the universe. And he's also a prominent atheist, less prominent now that he had a bit of a scandal, but we won't go into that. that, that that's not relevant to his science. And he wrote a book called A Universe from Nothing, where he described a universe from nothing. And uh, he got some flack because his nothing doesn't isn't the same as maybe a philosopher's nothing. Yeah. Uh, so Alex is, I, I, I mean, you got to sell books, right? So like a universe from nothing isn't going to sell any books. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people get hung up on the name and the universe from nothing when Lawrence Krauss actually goes in a really great detail on what he means when he says nothing, right? Right. If you actually read the book or you don't have to read the book if you just listen to him talk on the on a thing. I'll we'll put a link uh, over there to a video where Lawrence Krauss is explaining his model in a lecture uh, at the Radcliffe Institute, and he is very careful to, after kind of flippantly talking about it, he does define what he means by nothing. So, and what's coming here is uh, there's a bit of equivocation going on, or or at least the word nothing has more than one meaning. So if I went to some random person on the street and i was like here's a patch of empty space between the planets there's no dust no nothing there was that nothing they probably yeah that's nothing there's nothing there but it's not nothing nothing right space it's still space space has properties uh so when when alex and other theists say nothing what they mean is the absence of all properties so space isn't nothing because space has properties you know, it, it, anything with a property at all is not nothing, right? Right. But that's not the only way the word nothing is used. When Krauss is arguing for a universe from nothing, what he's arguing for is a universe from when there was no time, no space, no matter or energy prior to the Big Bang. And his model, his idea is because gravity can be negative energy under certain circumstances, that can... If the universe is completely flat, then the negative energy from gravity uh, can balance the positive energy from stars and galaxies and, you know, atheist YouTubers and stuff like that. So and if those exactly equal, you'd have a net zero energy universe. And because there's no energy, if you added it all up, then you wouldn't be violating conservation of energy to just boom, get get the universe, the ultimate free lunch. Yeah. But there would still from be from nothing, right? From nothing, from no space, no time, no matter, no energy. But it would this whatever this is, and it's kind of hard to conceive of what that would be. But uh, that wouldn't have no properties. It has the properties of being able to spawn universes in this way, according to laws of physics, following conservation of energy and those sort of things, which is what he explains in the book and also in his lectures. And so it's not that he mean, he doesn't mean nothing in the way that Alex means it. Well, sometimes to move two steps forward, you've got to take one step backwards. The traditional definition of universe comes from the Latin all things. And many scientists believe that all that exists is time, space and matter. Many of those same scientists believe that the universe began to exist. Now, if the universe began to exist, the universe cannot bring itself into existence. It wasn't around at the time. Okay, so now we got another word <laughs> with some tricky definitions. And uh, I, I applaud him for tr for trying to define it. He, he talks about the, the original meaning and things like that. But that's not so helpful when we're talking about how, how the word's used like right now by cosmologists. So why don't we define our terms? Why don't we just be very careful and explain what we mean when we say the word universe? Yeah, so we're, we're meaning our local existence of time space right we're not talking about the entire cosmos and the carl sagan kind of i mean we view. might be 
it's unclear whether our contiguous region of space-time that's governed by our laws of physics, if that is all there is. It may be all there is. It may not be. If if that is all there is, then the universe and cosmos would be synonymous. But so what happened is we had this this word universe, which meant all things, right? And it kind of got attached to the world we live in, right? And then scientists realized, hey, that might not be everything, but it was kind of too late. Universe had already stuck. The label was right. already on it. And so uh, it, it's it's extra confusing because even scientists don't use the word a hundred percent consistently. Sometimes I'll use cosmos. Sometimes I'll use universe. Sometimes I'll use other words, but basically what's happening here is the universe that these scientists all agree began to exist um, is our local instantiation of space time. That does not mean that everything everywhere for all time necessarily came into existence at the big bang. And so this goes into kind of the Kalam cosmological argument, which I think he's kind of alluding to here, right? Um, Jordan did a debate on this at one point, uh, so we can maybe link to that. Um, it was a long time ago, actually. but uh, It was a very long time ago, before I <laughs> yeah. wore the bow tie. Yeah. Uh, okay, so, but, okay, so now that we've got yeah. what we mean by universe and what scientists, when they're talking about the universe beginning to exist, this is what they mean. Okay, so now with that, armed with that and armed with an understanding of what nothing means, now we can move forward. All of these same scientists have posited that all exists is time, space, and matter, and the universe began to exist. Nothing exists outside of the universe. Well, the universe came from nothing. Okay, so now that we've spent some time defining what we mean by universe, defining what we mean by nothing, and more importantly, what scientists mean, when they say those words, we can see the equivocation that Alex is committing here. Uh, we've covered the equivocation fallacy before. What that is, is you're using a word with multiple meanings in a different way as your argument goes on, right? So it starts with one meaning, but kind of transforms into another meaning as we go. The equivocation here is Alex is saying, these scientists agree the universe began to exist, okay? And that is a true statement. Then he says, the universe is everything that existed ever. So not every scientist says that the universe began to exist in the sense of everything, right? The cosmos began to exist. Some scientists do believe that the cosmos and the universe are the same. And that all came into existence at the Big Bang. Other scientists don't. There are models such as Lawrence Krauss's model, which we've been talking about, or Sean Carroll's model or others that don't include that assumption. And so it is not settled science to say that the Big Bang was the beginning of all there was. The Big Bang was the beginning of our universe. Yeah. Sometimes uh, Christians and theists will try to point to, you know, people like Krauss and Carroll to say that this is just atheists trying to get out of the, you know, the Big Bang problem because they see it as a problem for us. Um, obviously, this is one of his questions. He sees it as a problem for atheists, right? But that's not the case. This isn't where like scientists are like, oh, we got to fix this problem. Let's create a solution for it. They're just going where the evidence leads and their evidence suggests to them that there could be other things outside of our local substantiation of space time, right? So, Right. Uh, if, for instance, we actually, I had talked to uh, another physicist who is a Christian on this channel, uh, I talked to Jeff Swearink with Reasons to Believe, and uh, we had a great interview, even though my mic was my crappy webcam <laughs> mic because I messed up, but it was still a good interview. And he said that if the inflationary cosmology model is correct, and there's very good reasons to think it is, then we live in a one kind of multiverse, a multiverse where there's more to the universe than our universe. There's more to the cosmos than our universe. Now, he he thinks that the universe did come into existence, the Big Bang. But the idea that there's a multiverse in some sense is not controversial even for Christians, right? So this isn't like some crazy atheist thing being used as a rescue device just to you know, <laughs> save our worldview or something. Right, right. Just, you know, what, what, what some scientists believe uh, the evidence is telling them. And so uh, when he says, what's outside of the universe? Nothing. Well, that's just, that's an assertion. What's outside of the universe? I, I don't know. Who knows? It could be could, Jello. We have no idea. Well, it could be nothing, right? <laughs> yeah. it, it might be that the universe is all there is, and so there's no outside. The universe is like a meaningless statement. There is no outside, right? right? So you could say that there's nothing there, or it could be a 
multiversal foam of many other universes. Who knows, right? It's not a settled statement is the point. Uh, why would they conclude that when that doesn't make sense? You don't get something from nothing. Well, think about it. If all that exists is time, space and matter, what is responsible for the beginning of these things would have to be timeless, spaceless, immaterial. You could argue very powerful. You could even add on personal. Okay, so yeah, now we are getting into the... Uh, <laughs> yeah, now this is classic William Lane Craig. Yeah, right Bill Craig stuff here, yeah. And, and, and it's even more funny too is the uh, the Kalam cosmological argument has nothing to say about these other things, right? It's just a... If the universe... Yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay, so this is clearly based on a confusion around the word universe. So let, let's back up. Let's, let's remove that word universe because it's confusing. Let's use the word cosmos. And that means everything that exists, okay? And nothing means no properties whatsoever. Then his argument is, premise one, the cosmos began to exist at some time in the past, T. Premise two, before time, T, there was nothing. Conclusion, something else with properties spawned the universe, right? Because if it has no properties, you can't spawn the universe, right? So premise one, the cosmos began to exist at some time. That's not, that's not certain. There are cosmological models, the Carol Chen model, the Hawking Hartle model, others that don't include that premise. There are problems with all those models. We probably don't have the right model yet, but the point is there are problems with it. There was something he'd have to substantiate. It's not something he can merely assert. It is not a scientific consensus by any stretch. Premise two, before time T, there was nothing. This is something else that Alex just takes for granted, but he needs to substantiate that. The, the premise, him saying, and we agreeing that from nothing, nothing comes, that tells me that there was never nothing because we have something now, right? So that's what yeah. it would tell me. So from nothing, nothing ever comes. We have something, therefore nothing never was. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Was, yeah. There was never nothing. So <laughs> if Alex is going to make this argument work, in addition to proving that the cosmos began to exist, he'd have to prove that there was ever a state of nothingness that was ever a real state that in some sense I mean, I don't know if it, because being real would also be a property. So I don't know if like, and what, you're getting into some weird philosophical stuff. Right, right. Prove that nothing happened at some point ever. <laughs> is, what, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, so basically, Alex needs to not just declare that these things are true. He needs to actually prove them. We have a universe from nothing, which doesn't make sense. And they know it doesn't make any sense. So they subtly redefine nothing as something to wriggle out of an uncomfortable situation. So this, I think, is not a great characterization of what we're trying to do. We're not tr redefining nothing to wriggle out of a situation. What's happening is Alex is equivocating on the word nothing. I'm going to be charitable and assume it's just because he, he doesn't understand what Krauss was trying to say or what the cosmologists are trying to say. I, I assume it's just, you know, unintentional. But unintentional or not, it is equivocation. He's equivocating on the word universe. He's equivocating on the word nothing. So it's not that we're like trying to wriggle out of an uncomfortable situation. It's that Alex himself is confused and or, or is using the word inconsistently. And so he's getting inconsistent results. Yeah. And I, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I'm not trying to wriggle out of an uncomfortable situation. Like, it, so, I don't yeah, know. I, I are you? I just want to know what. I just yeah. want to know what the truth is. And if the truth is that the universe began to exist, that's that like, it would have no impact on my life. So it's it honestly, this, this topic and this um, subject are so dense and so hard to understand that I have a hard time. Like I tried reading Krauss's book. Like I tried listening, like it's just Sean Carroll stuff. Like it just, I can't, I can't take it all in. I just can't do it. Like, so I usually have to take a few passes through their books to really, really. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So, so speaking of stuff that we don't understand, question nine <laughs> was, how do you get life from non-life? So talking about abiogenesis, right? Um, now, Alex seemed offended that I objected to his use of Scientific American as a source. He, he basically pointed to Scientific American, said Scientific American says that uh, the more we look at it, the worst abiogenesis looks. And I said, that's a magazine. That's not an actual scientific source. Now, it is true that Scientific American is probably better at communicating science than CNN or Fox News or something like that, because that's what they do, right? 
they're, they're a publication that is intending to communicate science to a lay audience, right? However, they're not peer-reviewed, though they do try to base themselves on peer-reviewed evidence. They are not themselves peer-reviewed. And I know for a fact that they are not always reliable in vetting their stories and making sure that the science they're basing it on is sound. So this, I alluded to this before, but because Alex seemed to object to my characterization of Scientific American, the specific instance, the way I know for a fact that Scientific American is not necessarily reliable, uh, comes from a project I had to do in school where there was a particular article that Scientific American published in November 2009, A Plan for a Sustainable Future. And it was written by two gentlemen, Jacobson and DeLucci, and it was their plan for a sustainable energy future. And they excluded nuclear power from that future completely because they said it was 25 times more polluting than wind and extremely dangerous, like would cause tremendous loss of life. And then they just breezed on. Okay. If you go read the papers, and they were peer-reviewed papers that they were published on, but if you go actually read them, uh, it, there's a couple that they did, but one of them, the most important one, is Jacobson 2008, Review of Solutions to Global Warming, Air Pollution, and Energy Security, published in the journal Energy and Environmental Sciences. So if you read that paper, almost all of the emissions they attribute to nuclear power don't actually come from nuclear power per se. They assume that there will never be any learning or speeding up the process of building a nuclear power plant. There will never be any streamlining of the uh, process of licensing, that basically things stay the way they are forever, and that building a nuclear power plant means you aren't building anything else, and therefore, like you're not building anything else. And therefore, if you did absolutely nothing but waited around with your hands in your pockets for this nuclear power plant to, to come online, that's where all their emissions are coming from which none of those none of those statements are plausible and and they are also not consistent with the benefits that they give to wind and solar which i think they should like they assume that solar is going to get better over time and wind is going to get better over time but not nuclear nuclear can't get better over time nuclear is dead <laughs> and, speaking of dead uh the reason that they say nuclear power is super dangerous it's funny if you look at the at the picture in the article and i'm not gonna put it on because it's like uh, it's probably behind a paywall but like if you look at the picture there's like a black bar for like the actual deaths per terawatt hour. And then there is this massive gray bar above nuclear. And all of those deaths are because they credit nuclear power or penalize nuclear power with the extinction of the human species from thermonuclear war. And so they say, if we basically what they're saying is if we use nuclear power plants, that means the entire species will be wiped out and that would be bad. <laughs> it's just, yes, that would be bad. But It's just absurd. It is yeah. a ridiculous statement. And they were rightly excoriated for their statements by the rest of the literature, right? right. So, but had, yeah, had the article been peer reviewed, though, it wouldn't have made that far to begin with. Uh, well, for, well, I mean, to be fair, the, the, paper I'm no, I mean the scientific theory. American but had scientific yes American done their due diligence and read it I would like to think that somebody there would have realized that this is ridiculous and had them change the article but they didn't and so all of this is to say that you can't just say oh it's in scientific American therefore it's fact okay that is not the case you can't even say oh it's in a peer-reviewed paper therefore it's fact because peer-reviewed papers can also be wrong you know yeah yes. that's why you have to look at the consensus and so what's the consensus on abiogenesis? Well, this is where we have reached the limit of my understanding of biology. <laughs> so uh, I'm going, we're going to leave a link to friend of the channel, Jackson Wheat. He is a uh, aspiring biologist and he did a video or a couple of videos on abiogenesis talking about the state of research and uh, how it might come along. The short story from what I understand is that the RNA world hypothesis is looking pretty rosy. And that's essentially that. Uh, while DNA is very complicated and hard to make, RNA is much simpler and can do a lot of the functions of DNA, just not as well. Yep. And so if we could get to RNA through the primordial super, that's not the model they use anymore, but you know, whatever the initial conditions of the earth were, if you can get to RNA from those conditions and there are reasons to think we can, then you can use RNA to get DNA and that's no problem. Like once you have a self-replicating molecule, that if something can replicate with errors, but not too many errors, which RNA can do, then evolution can work and yep. you're fine. This is kind of what I was alluding to in our original response video when I was talking about that we're all just made up of chemicals and that chemicals in the right conditions, right? Uh, and that's when he said that I was a huge man of faith to believe something like that, right? Which, side note here, 
Why is it that Christians always use the the term faith as a pejorative term when they're speaking with atheists, but when they're talking about you know Christian things, it's like a good thing? I don't I don't get so, it. So I I think where that's coming from is because atheists will say that they don't have faith, and many atheists will get very offended if you try to say that they have faith. And so it's kind of a, a rhetorical flourish to say, oh no, not only do you have faith, you have more faith than I do, you know. Yeah. Uh, but allegedly faith is a good thing. Uh, Frank so Turks of the world. So yeah, right. Basically yeah. all, this is just a God of the gaps argument. When exactly. you boil it all down, this is just saying, we don't know. Therefore we do know. And the answer is God. And even if, even if the theory of evolution was nonsense, that would not prove creation. You would have, you would then have to still prove that creation happened. Right. Which is not something that Alex even attempts to do. Okay, so go talk to a biologist to talk about abiogenesis. Uh, question eight is on consciousness, and we're not going to solve the hard problem of consciousness here on this YouTube channel, so we're going to move right along to question <laughs> seven. How do you get design without a design? Another thing that, George, that Jared had um, pointed out was he rejected my suggestion that evolution is an unguided mechanism. He said that's not how evolution works, but that is how evolution works. It is an unguided mechanism. So, uh, I don't know, maybe there was some corruption in the video last time. Uh, maybe it just cut out at an opportune moment only in Scotland. So let's play what, what Jared actually said, just for the record. <laughs> when he's using the word design, he's implying that there was an intentionality behind that design, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a disconnect here because for him, an unguided process means completely random, happened by chance, whereas that's not how evolution works. I mean, so correct me if I'm wrong, Jared, but when you said that that's not how evolution works, what you meant was the thing you said like literally seconds before, which is, is it not completely random? Correct. That, that was the that main, accurate? yeah, okay. that's accurate. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame yeah. you didn't put that more succinctly. Like you shouldn't leave such a gap between what you say and like clarifying it, you should really try to put those in a quantum superposition so they're at exactly the same times. So there's no way to miss it. Next time, I'll just make sure they're overlapped. So that's- Yeah, <laughs> yeah that'll make it way more clear. Uh, so perhaps Alex uh, objects to the usage of unguided. Maybe, he maybe that's not what he means by unguided, right? I don't know. He didn't clarify that. But what we're saying is, and what, I, so far as I can tell, Alex doesn't object to, is that evolution is not completely random. Evolution has random aspects, but it, natural selection, which is not the only mechanism of evolution anyway, but natural selection is not random. It does not randomly choose things. Every time a new kind of thing emerges, it requires a stroke of luck. Why? Well, the gene pool is only so deep. A new kind of thing requires a new kind of gene, and random mutation is the bridge between one kind of thing and another. Random mutation is random. Actually, it generally means you're unlucky, uh, so it's even harder to end up with something that helps you rather than hurts you. So you have to get lucky, you know? And the implication is too lucky for it to actually happen. That's the implication, right? Uh, you, you would need to be, it's more likely to hurt you. And so over the long t scale, you're not going to get beneficial mutations. That's not going to happen because it would, you'd have to be too lucky. The gene pool is just not deep enough. I mean, so I think we actually have examples of this that we've observed with our own eyeballs in the recent past, right? We have, we have two examples that I, as a dumb idiot, when it comes to biology, happen to know <laughs> off the top of my head, uh, which means that there are plenty more. If you go to Jackson Weed's channel or Creation Myths, uh, they'll they'll have plenty more content for you if you want to talk biology. But the two that this moron knows are uh, the Lensky E. coli long-term evolution experiment, and this one is really cool. Actually, if you've never heard it, I strongly recommend that after you're done with this, you go look up that experiment. But basically, what this guy did, Lensky, and of course all his staff is they took different strains of E. coli with diff um, they had like two different types and they labeled them carefully so they could distinguish between the different strains. And each morning they would pour like a nutritional broth of glucose, which is what E. coli eats and a bunch of other stuff in their citrates that they don't eat, you know, kind of like to make up the bulk. And the E. coli would do their thing 
And at the end of the day, they would freeze that strain. So they like, okay, we've taken the strain. They'd like put it in the freezer and then start it over the next day. And so they had a continual record of every strain for years. So they could see if a new trade emerged, if anything happened, they could wind back the clock and look back in time to see like where it happened and find out what had gone on. Brilliantly designed experiment. It's, it's amazing. Some of the best science I've ever heard of. And a new trait did in fact emerge because they found one day that one of the, uh, one of the E. coli strains was doing significantly better than all the rest. And what they, as they, as they looked into it, they found that this E. coli was not just eating the stuff they were supposed to eat. This E. coli was also eating the citrates, which it's not supposed to be able to do. Not only, so citrates, E. coli, uh, they can't aerobically grow on citrate. In fact, that is a feature that you use to distinguish E. coli from other species like salmonella. But this E. coli said, I don't care about your labels or your boundaries. <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway and figured out how to do it. And I'm, so I'm using words like figured out. Obviously, the E. coli didn't think about it. It just happened, you know. But this was a very clear instance of a new trait evolving in a particular strain of E. coli through random mutation, through a string of random mutations. It didn't just take one. There were several that had to happen in the strain for it to work. And they, you can read about it. They wind back the clock. They find exactly like where the branch was, which mutation was. They, this happened in a lab. You, you could not ask for a more clear sign of evolution happening right in front of you. But if you did ask, I have another one. So <laughs> uh, this one's also pretty cool. It's called nylonase. Now it's called nylonase because the AISE, that's the thing you throw onto stuff when it's gonna like eat it. It's like the thing you use to digest stuff. Like mayonnaise. Like mayonnaise, right. This is the <laughs> high quality science content you're getting for this channel. And nylon, because that's the thing it was eating they found a organism that uh, could digest nylon. It survived by eating nylon and they found it like in the pool downstream from a nylon factory, from a place that produces it. So this, at some point, they don't know exactly when because they weren't like observing the stream, but they just right. found it. Uh, they found this creature that had evolved to eat this substance. This substance did not exist before the early 20th century. Like we made it. Humans invented the substance. It does not exist in nature. So uh, either this nylonase was just biding its time for billions of years, waiting <laughs> around for the eventual <laughs> invention of its food, or it evolved a way to consume a new food source that it found in its area. And just so happened to be right there in that local, you know. I mean, not just so happened. That's why there was an evolutionary yeah. pressure. There's there's a resource that could be exploited. So evolution happened and the resource was exploited. That's what happens, right? Yeah. And so those are just two examples of countless other examples that people much smarter than me know. Go talk to a biologist. But basically, it's not the idea that new traits can evolve is not hypothetical. We have observed it happening. We can see it happening right now today. And so it, to, to pretend like it would require this ridiculous stroke of luck that's so absurd, it's, it's just not true. Yeah, I mean, just, mutations happen all the time. Um, right. And some of them are beneficial. So, so onward to problem six, uh, the problem of evil. This is a favorite one in uh, these circles. Usually it's used by the atheist against the theist. And so the problem of evil, we've done some videos on this before, basically is that uh, there's evil in the world. And by evil, we mean suffering. Like there's horrible evils, like, tsunamis and plagues and stuff like that and uh god is supposed to be all powerful and also good so he could stop the evil and if he's good would want to stop the evil and yet we have it right and that's the problem of evil so yeah so it is clearly not a problem for atheists right because if you remove any of those parts of the dilemma then we just have gone. evil without the problem right exactly it, yeah, yeah. So here's what he had to say about it. But the point is, there is no evil in the universe, according to atheism. Everything just comes down to personal taste and preference. So this is another example of either either equivocation or just like not understanding what we mean by the word, uh, which I think we are pretty clear on. But ju let's just be clear. 
uh, when we say when evil is used in this context, what they're really talking about is suffering. So the, the argument is also called the problem of suffering or the problem of gratuitous suffering. So let, why don't we remove the word evil because apparently it's confusing and we'll just use the word suffering. If we use the word suffering, then I think it becomes obvious why this is ridiculous. So we've the, the argument, the problem of suffering is there's a almighty deity who's supposed to be really great and yet we suffer why do we suffer so much and so if you remove the almightyness of the deity you remove the goodness from the deity or remove the deity entirely then all you have is suffering why do we have suffering like there's no problem anymore that's like the whole argument <laughs> right so he's trying to tie the problem of suffering as if it were a problem for atheists it's not but really there's two questions here because he talks about the problem of evil that's silly so we can put that aside. But then what he does in both his original video and his response is he talks about morality. And I think that's what he's really trying to get at, is that we don't have a basis to make moral judgments. Uh, you can see this in the original video. But, but rejecting the existence of God doesn't solve the problem. It causes an even bigger one. So, and then he goes on to talk about morality and how we don't have objective morality. And I cannot stress this enough. This is a different argument than the problem of suffering. Yeah. So pretending those two are, are, the sa are the same is misleading at best. Rejecting God absolutely addresses the problem of suffering. Now, it may not address the problem of morality. That is a separate charge you can level. And so the way the problem of morality would work is that basically premise one, uh, without a deity, we don't have objective morality. Objective two, or premise two, we do have objective morality, therefore there's a God, something yeah. like that. And then you'd have to first establish that there's objective morality. Right. Um, when it, so for the problem of suffering, we've dealt with this on a couple of times on the podcast, and we'll link some of those here. We did a whole episode on theodicies. Um, so theodicies are basically Christians' way to try to solve these problems that come about with having a God. Um, but problem of evil is a different topic, and we weren't addressing the problem of evil when we were answering this question. We were addressing the problem of suffering or the problem of evil. So, So... Uh, if you want to hear about us talking about morality, though, the objective morality problem, I talked about that in my response to Brian uh, Holdsworth when he, he argued that uh, morality proved God's exist existence, and I argued that it didn't. The Cliff Notes version is, I don't think that we have objective morality, not, at least not in the way that I think Alex means it, as if it were some like morality thing we could go measure, or, or in his case, he thinks that God gives it to us or whatever. Right. I think that in some sense... Morality is objective if you have a goal, and the goal is, for example, to enhance human flourishing, reduce human suffering. Then you could say, this action doesn't accord with that goal, therefore it's evil. Right. But you just define good and evil in the context of the goal you've just achieved. That's assuming we all agree on the same goal or something like that too, right? So Right. And we get these goals through our shared evolutionary heritage. We are a social species of primates. And in order for us to survive, we had to evolve a way of, of living together without stabbing each other too much, you know, without stealing too many berries from the other ape. And you can see the kind of nascent bits of morality, even like senses of fairness and things in our primate cousins, yep. even today. They, they object if they do it the same task as another ape, but the other ape gets more than them. Yep. That's a problem. Well, you can right. see this even, and they've done experiments in labs with rats too, who will, will do the same thing, similar thing. So either God has also imbued that sense of morality onto all of his creation, or it's better explained by evolutionary reasons. So, And so you could say that, well, your choice of, of goal is subjective. And maybe, like, I guess in a sense, I mean, I, I think the fact that we all have this shared evolutionary heritage, so it's like kind of the drive that's shared by pretty most almost all humans i won't say all there's some people who don't but most humans share this goal i think that's th that's like bigger than one person but yeah i mean ultimately we had to choose something and all of us got together and decided that we were going to do this thing and if you don't like it too bad like like that, that that's like at the base level that's what it yeah. is and uh so it may be that alex doesn't like it he, he wouldn't like to live in a world without objective morality very well but that doesn't mean that there that objective morality exists right yeah here's here's the thing 
I don't think you would know if you lived in a world with objective morality or not, because it's not like, unless the person like came down and like wrote it like on the moon or something like that. Right. Where it was like, here's the objective morals. Like, even so, all you yeah. have is writing on the moon. Right. right. I'm saying, but if you know? there was some so, way to convey what objective morals were, but there's no, there's no way we have that. So we don't even know if we yeah. do. Right. What we have is a sense of morality that is mostly kind of sort of the same among all right. of us, right? We, we kind of mostly agree on the broad strokes of what's good and evil. If you get down to the specifics, though, there's all kinds of, of confusion and argument. So, like, even if there is objective morality, it may as well not exist because none of us can apparently sense it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's clear, like, they'll always go to things like oh you don't torture babies for fun or whatever like okay yeah pretty much all of us can agree on that but what about like is it okay to steal bread to feed your family i think so but an argument could be made that it's not and people do make that argument is it okay to kill someone else i think there are situations where it is but other people disagree you know or is it okay to lie for example is it okay Uh, so augustine uh, famous Saint Augustine. Uh, he was a starch. Like it's never okay to lie, no matter what. And so he was like one of those hardcore Christians. It was like, I don't care if your lying saves your mom and dad from dying. You still don't lie. You let them die. Like right. Like, Whereas most people, I think, would say, of course it's okay to lie sometimes. Like yeah. if the Nazis are coming to kill the Jew that you're hiding, then you should lie to save the person's life. Obviously, that's better. Yeah. So. You have two people there, two groups of people who disagree on a very fundamental piece of morality. So whether or not objective morality exists, for any practical purposes, it doesn't because we have no access to it. Correct. Well, uh, questions five and four, we're going to skip because he's basically kind of just talking the same talking points he had before. It didn't really add anything new to this, but it's basically dealing with meaning and purpose, right? So It boils down to an argument from consequence, which is... If you believe this, it would lead to things that we don't like, things like feeling of purposelessness, feelings of meaningless, which I don't agree that they would. But even if it were true, none of that would show that his argument was correct. So yeah. it, whatever. Uh, I, I'm not persuaded by – basically, if we are just a spec, a universal spec, the pale blue, blue dot, I am perfectly comfortable with that. It doesn't bother me in the slightest. I understand why it's an interesting question. But even if the premise is true, okay, yeah. fine. So let's move right along to human freedom. Question number three. Uh, this is basically talking about libertarian free will. So Alex believes that we have free will, meaning that we are free to choose with no outside influences. He didn't say that, but that's what libertarian free will means. So I assume that's what he means. That seems to be what he means. And he says that under atheism, we have no free will. And that's too high of a price for him to pay. So in a sense, that could be another argument from consequence. Uh, I don't like, I wouldn't like a situation or a world in which I didn't have free will. Therefore, I reject the the conclusion. But to be charitable to Steelman, what he may be saying is, I have the immediate experience of having free will. And that's evidence, you know. So like, I'm not willing to forego this direct evidence I have of being free. Like I'd need something to overcome that. That might be something of what he's saying. Yeah. Which, uh, well, also he didn't really address what your main, your, one of your arguments was in the video, right? He kind of just bypassed that. Yeah. So I actually pushed it back on him. And since he missed it the first time, I'll say it again. I don't think that under Christian theism, the, the mainstream sort of Christian theism of a tri-omni perfect being God, a God that is omnipotent, omniscient, meaning all-powerful, all-knowing, and a creator being, right? If that's the kind of Christian God we're positing, I don't think that that being can exist in a world where we have free will. The reason being, in order for us to have free will, we would need to be able to make a choice freely. We'd have to truly be able to choose otherwise if we wanted right? The, the ability to choose otherwise is basically what free will comes down to. But if God is omnipotent, so he can create any world he wants, and he's omniscient, meaning before he creates this world, he knows the consequences of doing so, right? He has, if, if I'm going to make universe A, Jordan 
retains his Christian faith and goes on to be saved. But if I make universe B, Jordan doesn't retain his, his faith. He freely chooses to not to, to pursue paths that lead him away from the Christian faith. So even if universe A, I freely chose paths that lead me to Christianity, universe B, I freely chose paths that lead me away, the choice of A or B is chosen by God. And he knows what I'm going to do, basically. And he could have chosen otherwise. So in a sense, my choice is already predestined. I, I never really had the opportunity to choose otherwise because God made that choice for me. He said, "In I'm going to make universe B. I'm looking at A. I could choose A. I am not choosing A. I'm choosing B. Well, that means that I'm going to not be a Christian. God already made that choice, right? Mm -hmm. And so if having free will is something that you cannot let go of, then I don't think you can choose either choice. Or better stated, I don't think it's diagnostic of truth between the two options. The lack of free will is the same in either case. Yeah, and uh, well, Christopher Hitchens said it best. Of course I have free will. I have no choice not to, like, right? So. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, that's not to say that we have no kind of free will. You can look at the writings of Daniel Dennett, who's a proponent of compatibilism. Um, he basically argues that we have free will. It's just not the free will you thought you had. You know, it's just different. You know, you just have to accept it. So, you know. And this could come down to one of those. Um, I just don't like not having the free will. Like, I don't like the thought of not having free will kind of things, which I think is where most people land, right? It feels uncomfortable to them to think that they don't actually have a choice in the actions that they make. So, But whether I have free will, honestly, if I find out definitively tomorrow, that nobody has free will. I don't think it would change anything. I, I don't think I would. I would do anything different. I mean, it couldn't, right? I wouldn't. I wouldn't have any choice. You know, you wouldn't have a choice to, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But like my my subjective experience wouldn't be changed at all. So, right, uh, it doesn't seem like a problem. And uh, the last two are identity, talking about the whether or not we have an identity as a person. That's a tricky question, but either way, <laughs> doesn't matter. And the last question, question one, is rationality, where he argues that we have no basis for rationality because our senses evolved, and therefore they didn't evolve to like determine truth. They evolved for procreation. Uh, I have nothing new to add. I'll just reiterate that if my senses were not good arbiters of truth, we'd probably die. If, if, if we couldn't accurately detect reality well <laughs> enough, then we wouldn't survive. And, we'd all be eating nylon. So. <laughs> yeah, we'd, we'd, all, we'd all be dead. Uh, and so... Like, I, I mean, it, this one gets to me sometimes because, like, we don't accurately perceive reality. Optical illusions and cognitive biases and all kinds of things interfere with our perception of reality. Yeah. It's our perception of reality is so unreliable. We can tell when it's being unreliable, you know? Yeah. So, like, what, what do we actually, we don't have this perfect perception of reality and truth. What we actually have is a kind of fuzzy, hazy perception that's good enough to get by and not get eaten, which is exactly what you'd expect if we evolve this this sense in order to get by and not get eaten, right? Yeah, and that's kind of hard to wrap your head around too when you have like these really smart people in the world. You think, well, certainly they have got to be like amazing people. What do you call somebody who reasons? Um, there's a word for it. Philosophers. Sure, a philosopher. You have these amazing philosophers out there, right? But even they don't have the best reason all the time, you know, so. But uh, I did want to point out, too, so he did kind of make it seem like we don't care about these questions, right? And to be fair, in our original response, we were a little sarcastic. We were a little glib, right? Yeah, we were yeah. a little short. And we said, short. Uh, I don't care about this question. So it's fair. It's fair yeah. that he, he said that. But I think, Jordan and I both agree, we do care about these questions, some because we've spent hours talking about these questions from time to time. It's the fact that we don't care if we don't have answers to many of these questions. That's the biggest thing here, right? So Right. Whether whichever way the answer falls on whether I have free will or whether identity is clearly delineated or whether there's objective morals, I'm fine. It it it's not it doesn't bother me either way. So in that sense, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, one of the other things too that he kind of alluded to was that uh, in order to live a happy and fulfilled life, you know, you have to, obviously an atheist can't live a happy and fulfilled life. He didn't come right out and say that, but um, I have a happy, fulfilled life. Um, I, I know some Christians who don't, and I know some atheists who do and vice versa. 
and we give ourselves meaning and purpose and all that stuff. So, um, right. Uh, you don't need a deity to give your life meaning. Uh, you, your life doesn't have ultimate meaning. I don't think, I don't think that in a trillion years, a universe where you existed, it'll be identical in all and all relevant respects to a universe in which you didn't exist. But maybe if, maybe like if you're Einstein or Newton, like maybe one of those guys may impact maybe. it, but, but maybe so, I don't think yeah, so. Even the, yeah. I think we'll all be gone. Our Earth Earth will be eaten by the yeah. sun, and our galaxy will be destroyed, and it'll be as if we were never here. Well, I'm sorry if that depresses you, but I don't know why any of us should be bothered by what's going to happen in a trillion years. None of us will be here, so right. let's just focus on the here and now. You just, know. But with all that said, uh, I really appreciate Alex, you know, taking the time to respond to our our response. Um, and i enjoy the engagement um we probably won't respond to any more videos unless he has some like earth shattering insights that we hadn't thought of but um yeah so we're going to move right along with our content uh looking forward to the next month we are going to be talking to tim o'neill with history for atheists i'm not sure exactly when it's going to be air we're gonna we have a date to record with him i'm not sure when we're going to air it but uh it'll be this month we're going to be talking about our recent interview with david fitzgerald so we talked with dave about his book um well, he's written several books nailed jesus mything in action basically his arguments for mythicism why he thinks jesus doesn't exist and we pushed on him and talked about why we think he's wrong and uh, tim o'neill who is an expert in this he's been talking about it for the better part of a decade uh was interested in watching our conversation said he was going to watch it and tell us how we did and so uh we're gonna be graded live on the air i'm sure in a couple weeks so if you want to see us get uh drugged through the mud by an expert then tune in <laughs> it's gonna be great no, we drag ourselves to the mud enough so yeah. <laughs> hopefully hopefully he'll have uh, some good critiques and he'll be able to push back on mythicism a little bit too uh also coming up this month Again, I'm not sure exactly when it's going to air, but uh, if you subscribe, hit the little notification bell, you'll know exactly when it happens. We're going to be debunking the Shroud of Turin, so look forward to that. Uh, but while we're getting all that ready, remember until next time, you always have reason to doubt. Peace out.